So man-made, you know, some 80, 90 years ago, we invented a material that lives forever. Who knew we could do that? We've invented this incredible, miraculous material that lives for centuries. And how do we treat it? Instead of putting it on a pedestal and treating it like gold and respecting it, we treat it like rubbish. We throw it in the street, we throw it in the bin, we throw it in the oceans, we throw it in the fields. And that's the problem, is that we've taken this indestructible material and we use it for temporary purposes. And then we fool ourselves, oh, we can recycle our way out of this problem, which is never, ever going to happen. Welcome Getting There fans, I'm your host Alejandro Garcia Maya. An estimated 8.3 billion tons of plastic have been produced since the 1950s. That's equivalent to the weight of more than 800,000 Eiffel Towers. And how much of that has been recycled? Only 9%. How can we get to the heart of the problem and turn off the plastic tap? On today's show, we have Sean Sutherland, co-founder of A Plastic Planet, a company dedicated to inspire a change in the plastic food packaging industry by reducing the use and consumption of indestructible plastics. In this episode, Sean and I go over the challenges plastic has created in our world today. We go over many questions, including what are microplastics? What are plastic-free aisles? Are there sustainable alternatives to plastic? And much more. Join us in our conversation. Let's do this. What do you believe you learned most from your parents? I probably learned you don't get anything unless you work really hard for it. Mm. So my parents owned one house in their whole life. They worked really hard for that. You know, we never had um, holidays abroad. You know, that, was, that was just not on our radar at all. I can remember the day my dad bought a television and brought that home. That was a big red-letter red day for us. Yeah. yeah. And they, you know, he was a doctor. My mum was a teacher. So they were kind of you know, that middle-class professionals, but they worked so hard for it all the time. So I think I learned you know, the value of money and that things are not necessarily meant to be easy and just given to you on a plate. So what attracted you or attracts you to the consumer branding world? What got you to go in, the, in that world in the first place? Well, um, my first job was in advertising. So when I came up to London, I I started work at 17. I didn't go to university, started work early, then moved up to London and got a job in advertising. And that was in, you know, the real heyday of advertising being quite an extraordinary career to be in. Mm. But for some random reason, I decided to leave quite soon. And I left when I was 25 and set up my first business, which for some crazy reason was a restaurant. So I went from advertising, <laughs> you know, with, with a relatively cushy life and a, and a nice company car to opening a restaurant in Soho and putting the team together and finding the building and uh, raising the funding for it. And I had no experience at all in running a restaurant. Uh, we were a very young team. So it was myself, my restaurant manager and, and my chef. And we won a Michelin star in our first year. What? And a Michelin star is, oh my God. is amazing and terrible. So we were, you know, one of the youngest teams to ever win a star. But it, it means that you then create a chef 
who is paranoid that he's either going to lose the star or <laughs> doesn't get another star. <laughs> so you, you suddenly, you know, you with success with, comes with, more uh, more burdens. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let me get this straight. You you started a restaurant just out of the blue. You got a Michelin star, which for most people in the restaurant business, that's something that they dream about for their entire yeah. career, having studied it. And then you say, okay, we're good. Let's, let's move on. And, and then you went back into creating your own branding company. Is that what it is? That's it. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I have a kind of cycle with every seven years. I reinvent myself. <laughs> From ad agency to restaurateur to running a branding agency to running a skincare brand. And all of these things feel, they, they seem very different. Uh-huh. And I had zero experience in any of them before I did them. But what I learned really early on is, is it's all the same. It's all the same shit. <laughs> you know, it's like basic business common sense uh-huh. and creating something that people need rather than just want, you know, so you're not just selling stuff. But and differentiating yourself, like you mentioned. Yeah. You know, how can exactly. we're going to go and in this really direction? really strong differentiation. What yeah, in every way, in just the positioning and, and branding of things, but also in the distribution model of things. After that, you took up a number of advisory roles, and then mm-hmm. you decided to co-found a Plastic Planet. Exactly. Why? How did that exactly. happen? Why did that happen? Yeah, particularly when you think, I'd run a skincare brand for 10 years. How, <laughs> how much of a plastic sinner am I? You know, I had pumped out personally, you know, millions of unrecycled mm. plastic into the environment. Didn't even think about it. Yep. Terrible to say that now. Was not on my radar. You know, I'm so busy thinking, where are we going to, what's our next product? Now, that sounds shocking because everybody's got a sustainability director and everybody's talking about it. <laughs> But it really, it really wasn't. Um, and then a very good friend of mine, Frederica Magnusson, who is my co-founder at Plastic Planet, asked me to get involved in the launch of a film called A Plastic Ocean. And that film, for me, was, of course, my epiphany of realizing what we have done. Is It was the first um, privately funded took eight years in the making, documentary feature on oh, the wow. situation of plastic in the ocean. And you can imagine during that eight-year journey of them making it, it started out being a story about plastic and then it ended up being the story about health, really, because so much new science was coming up and the, the magnitude of the problem was really coming up. And so I got involved in the launch of that film and it was actually at one of the screenings in London of this film. And we were lucky enough to have David Attenborough come into this tiny little screening. It was way before Blue Planet 2. And, uh, and he'd made such a big voice about the whole issue of plastic in the ocean. And so he was coming along to this screening, which was great, because otherwise nobody would have come. Who wants to come and see a film about plastic in the ocean? You know, what a downer. Nobody knew about it. Um, and it was just before that that we were thinking, so what's the takeaway for people? Nobody's going to recycle this stuff. <laughs> All we need is choice. And imagine if we could ask the supermarkets to give us one aisle that you could buy your food and drink not packaged in plastic, that you could do your regular grocery shopping, pop it all in there, take it home without the guilt. So that's when we started um, A Plastic Planet. It was born of us saying, okay, we're going to do something about this. And it starts with choice. So we always say, two unreasonable women who were just like, 
how can this be? And for goodness sake, just give us the choice. And if you choose to buy plastic, now we know what we know. Fine. That's also a human right. But it's like a human right has been taken from us that we cannot buy plastic free. When you can buy everything else free, you know, gluten, dairy, whatever, it's all out there for you, but try and buy plastic. What's the problem with plastic? Why is that bad? Plastic is not bad. Mm-hmm. There is nothing evil about plastic. The problem is how we use it. We misuse it. So man-made, you know, some 80, 90 years ago, we invented a material that lives forever. Who knew we could do that? We've invented this incredible, miraculous material that lives for centuries. And how do we treat it? Instead of putting it on a pedestal and treating it like gold and respecting it, we treat it like rubbish. We throw it in the street, we throw it in the bin, we throw it in the oceans, we throw it in the fields. And that's the problem, is that we've taken this indestructible material and we use it for temporary purposes. And then we fool ourselves, oh, we can recycle our way out of this problem, which is never, ever going to happen. Why is it so important for the plastic to, to be able to decompose? Why is that so necessary for the world? So, so the first thing for, for us to think is, so when you're looking at plastic, you've got the polymers that make up the plastic, but then you also have to make it into either a hard, rigid, shiny plastic or a super flexible saran wrap type plastic. You need a lot of other chemicals to make it into the plastic that is useful. And the chemicals that are used are a major part of the problem. So there are up to 5,000 different chemicals that are used to make all the different plastics that we have in the world. We don't even know the names of half of these chemicals. Wow. And definitely, I mean, you'll know things like BPA. You'll have heard about BPA. Mm-hmm. So BPA, that's now banned. It's not banned in, in the US, but it's banned in places like France. But now it's been replaced with something called BPS, which is actually just a slight tweak on BPA. So, you know, the, the industry are very clever at finding new ways to have, you know, okay, there's a ban on BPA, so we'll introduce something around the side that is actually very similar. So you have... The polymers, then you have this cocktail of chemicals that can have a real toxic impact on human health. Then when it breaks down in the ocean or in the soil, what happens with plastic is it doesn't become smooth and rounded. It becomes little jaggedy microplastics. And these are like little sponges that absorb other toxins. In the ocean, it could be heavy metals from generations of big industry. So it absorbs them. So they become like little toxic poisons way above and beyond just the fact that it's plastic in the first place that's toxic enough and then they enter say fish they enter gut and then those chemicals disperse into the fatty tissue of the fish which is the bit that we eat so that's when it becomes through our whole food chain and the cumulative effect of how much toxicity we have from the plastic diet that our fish are now having to eat. And you have to remember that, you know, this is now got many places in the ocean where it is two to one plankton to plastic. So it, there is a phenomenal amount of plastic. It's not, it's not just big pieces floating on the surface. It's not about, a, a, you know, an island in the Pacific. None of that is true. It's a soup that goes six miles deep. So it is every single part of our oceans, every part of our our polar regions, it's everywhere. Then you have the the fact that what does it do to us when it's in our bodies? We know we're inhaling nanofibers. From plastic clothing, we're inhaling nanofibers. We're we're eating everything because it's in the air now. It's in our water. 
And this is the big thing that we really need to watch out for, because it's not like it's a little bit. It's the accumulation of more and more and more of this toxic material coming into our bodies. And the, um, one of the things that we're involved in now is the first ever uh, global plastic health coalition, which is the coming together of all the, the health scientists around the world to finally prove the impact on human health, mm. the impact on your brain, the impact on babies when they're in the womb, the impact on, particularly on pregnant women who are very vulnerable, the impact on kids, all of these things, the impact on your autoimmune system, um, you know, which is phthalates, which we know are one of the plasticizers that, that attack the endocrine systems and the endocrine disruptors that you might have heard of. So you've got this cocktail of chemicals that we're putting into our bodies, we're inhaling, we're just, you know, every single day. And what this big health coalition is going to finally prove, and it's the world's top health scientists coming together for the first time to prove this is very, very bad for our health. And once you've proven that, then you have to think, so who is responsible for this? And this is where everything will come back, really. will come back to roost with the people that decide that they will continue to use plastic. The Coca-Colas of the world who continue to bump out, pump out 110 billion plastic bottles every year and have no responsibility for them. When we know the true impact on human health, then you have to look at responsibility and culpability and ultimately liability. And that will be the game changer in everything. When it's plastic free, what are the alternatives? What, what does many. it mean for it to be plastic free? It means, so we, we look at it really simply. There's plastic and plastic is anything that has a life which exists for centuries. It's all about end of life. So there is a, a whole strain of bioplastic, largely made from sugarcane. Then people say, oh, we're using sustainable plastic now. But actually the end of life, the fact it becomes a, a microplastic and lives forever is exactly the same. Mm. So fossil fuel plastic and that kind of bioplastic, they're all conventional plastic to us. And then you have this whole group of incredible other materials, some of which we've kind of fallen out of love with, with our addiction to plastic carton board, pulp, glass, wood, all of these things, um, which we can, you know, metal, aluminium cans, things like that, where highly recycled, not just recyclable. So, and then there's a whole raft of these biomaterials, which are really interesting, things made out of algae, um, things made out of mushrooms. So we call this group materials that nature can handle. This plastic, Nature can't handle it, and that's now well proven. But this group, are there's a whole raft of things. So we're seeing incredible new water bottles that are coming out that are plant-derived that can compost down, you know, certified compostable, that within a, a matter of weeks will disappear back into nature. And that's what we need. Because nature always had, well, there's a lot of talk at the moment about a circular economy and many big companies say, oh, we believe in the circular economy, you know, we're going to recycle more. Recycling plastic is not, is not circular. That's a downward spiral because plastic only ever degrades as you recycle it once, maybe twice. It's just delaying its journey to the bin, the ocean, the landfill, wherever it's going to go. Whereas nature always had this wonderful circular economy where everything goes back to the soil. So what we need is to use materials that do that. I mean, including us, we went back to the soil. So, so this is what we focus on. 
what what's the difference between the plastic free supermarket aisles and packaging free? Yeah. So 40% of all plastic is used for packaging. Huge amount of that is used for food and drink. And for us, that is almost the least defensible of all plastic because it is so momentary. You know, we buy it, we take stuff home, we eat it, we throw it in the bin, we eat on the go, we throw it in the bin. But now we know that only 9% of all the plastic in the world is ever recycled. I mean, in in the US, 4.4% of plastic was recycled in the US in 2018. So the whole recycling, there are no 4.4, less than 5%. And the rest of it is exported. It's burnt, it's incinerated, creating toxic fumes, um, or it goes into landfill, huge amount into landfill. And the exporting bit is really, um, is the most insidious to me because worldwide, we all ship our waste around the world. And as you'll probably be aware, we all used to send, like in the UK alone, we said 65% all our plastic waste to China. And now, China obviously don't want it anymore for the last year. So where else are we sending it? And it is shocking where we're sending our plastic waste. We're sending it to Myanmar. We're sending it to Mozambique. We're sending it to Malaysia. We're sending it to some of the poorest people on the planet. Our plastic waste from a relatively rich country who thinks it's not our job to deal with our own dirt, Mm. sending it abroad when we know they don't have the infrastructure to deal with their own waste, let alone ours, 100% recycled. So that whole thing, that's one of the things that we're doing right now is pushing for an outright ban on the export of our plastic waste to developing countries. So we evolved very quickly from a year ago of the plastic-free aisle that became very symbolic. We work with a lot of supermarkets now globally. Um, We launched the plastic-free consumer trust mark, which sits on the front of packaging. We've got 100 brands and businesses that are applying for that. And that's really, it's a reason to buy now. If you, you know, if you're out there shopping and you see tea bags that say plastic free on them, then you want to buy that versus the plastic because it's mm. guilt free. Uh, we launched one plastic free day, which I'd love to end on because that's coming up soon. And last year we launched it for the first time on June the 5th, which is World Environment Day. We deliberately chose World Environment Day because... As you were saying, the problem is way beyond our oceans. Plastic is in every glass of water, be it mineral water, bottled water, tap water. It's in every glass of water. It's in up to 23 times as much plastic in our soil as in our oceans. It's in the air we breathe. It is everywhere. And it's definitely in our bodies. What's currently something that people are suggesting should happen and what you believe uh, actually could be even better? Well, what we would love is to give tax concessions to people who are using some of these new amazing biomaterials, you know, who who certify for plastic free, who qualify for that. Um, Because right now we do not have a true price of plastic. So when we ask businesses to change and we work with a lot of different brands and businesses like Unilever and you know big big store groups when I was in Chicago I met Amazon and Target and everybody is thinking okay how can we change and we all know at the end of the day it's about money and at the moment the tr- the price of plastic is so low because it's a byproduct from the fossil fuel industry and obviously the fossil fuel industry is really keen to keep pumping it out as much as it can. We've now got cheap fracking gas you can make plastic from. So you've got all of this highly subsidized material and then you've got all these other materials that really don't get the same tax concessions in any way who are trying to do the right thing and not destroying the planet. And we need to make this more equitable 
we need to create a level playing field. And there's two ways we can do it. One is that we tax plastic. So we have a true price of plastic because right now there isn't price mm. because it's so subsidized. Or we give a concession to the people that are not using plastic to encourage them to, to be able to afford to swap materials. So we have to make it affordable for people to change. So one of the things that we um, floated out very early on was if a supermarket creates a plastic-free aisle, give them a business tax concession on that because they're doing something that is costly and inconvenient to them, but the right thing for the planet and for future generations. Mm. So we need to motivate business, help them change faster. So a lot of what we do at A Plastic Planet now is work with big business to help them find solutions and move faster. Because they want to, but it's just how fast can they do it? So an, an example of that would be we did the, the first hackathon with Unilever. And Unilever, you know, one of the five biggest polluters on the planet. Mm. It's, it's common knowledge. It's out there. All those numbers are there. People like Coca-Cola and Nestle and PepsiCo and, um, and Unilever. You know, massive polluters. They know it. They want to change. Yeah. Mm. So we did a big hackathon with them um, in November, which was working with their whole homeware division how can we eradicate 46 billion plastic sachets that Unilever alone pump out every single year, majorly used in developing countries? Because it's an affordability issue. When you buy your, you know, your washing detergent, you buy it in, in a one-off dose. So we had this full hackathon of, of all the top people in Unilever and then we brought 50 product developers and materials experts and waste management people and inventors, entrepreneurs in to really mix it up, have this wonderful day. And the end result of that is, here's an idea. And you would think, why didn't that happen anyway? But I understand that big business are so focused on the day job of delivering shareholder value and doing what they do and, and the churn of it all to step outside and perhaps think about doing something that is completely radical. And we have become so used to or we only know how to make things in plastic nowadays. So you have to completely rethink your whole supply chain. So none of this is easy. I find it really interesting that people say to me, so why does plastic get all the media, Sean? Because, you know, surely um, climate change, you know, that's the big one. Why are we so worried about plastic? But for me, plastic is the gateway. Plastic mm -hmm. is the one that if we know about plastic, then you suddenly start to look at all of this other, you know, here's me, the least likely eco-warrior on the planet. Look at my background. But then I discovered about plastic, and now I'm, I'm, I'm uncovering all of this other stuff and learning so much about what else we do mm. to not be good caretakers of the wonderful planet that we live on. We're the only living species on the planet that creates waste. And that's such a recent thing. We never used to. And now we do. And it's all about consumption. Yeah. So we have this drive to buy, 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 more, more, more. That's going to make me happy. And then it doesn't. So you buy, buy more because that wasn't the thing that filled the void inside us. Mm. And plastic is really the thing that has enabled massive growth in overconsumption because it made everything cheap and affordable. And I like what you said in terms of choice. Just provide a choice. Mm. Anyone who is listening to this, I just hope that this is an example, really of this is two unreasonable women joined by an army of an equally unreasonable people, expert in their field, that have created a lot of waves globally um, to give people choice and to try and turn off the plastic tap. That's our only goal. And I hope that, you know, what I want is for this to be an inspiration that you have, every single one of us, way more power than you think.
Well, that's this week's episode of Getting There. Thank you all for listening to the Getting There podcast. Very much appreciated. Be sure to visit gettingtherepodcast.com to learn about more leaders solving the world's most pressing problems through our videos, games, blogs, and more. If you are or have a friend who's a social impact leader using scalable technology to find sustainable solutions for world pressing problems, please reach out to my team and I at guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. That is guest at gettingtherepodcast.com. Catch a new episode every Tuesday. If you enjoyed the show and want to spread love back to my team and I, please make sure to subscribe and rate us. Have a wonderful day. And as my grandfather would say, adelante y arriba.